Live from Pier 28 on the San Francisco Embarcadero, it's the Idea Futures podcast where entrepreneurship meets design. Hey there, welcome to episode 46 of the Idea Futures podcast. This is Diego. I'm so glad that you're joining for this special episode. It's going to be a little different than some of the podcasts that have come before this. So the point of view that we've taken with this podcast is imagine a Venn diagram of design in one bubble and entrepreneurship in the other one. And we're really interested in that overlap. And I love that overlap. However, I got to say that I had a life before I became a business designer. And back then I was a mechanical engineer. And in fact, the entire reason I studied mechanical engineering, well, not the entire reason, but a big one was that my goal in life when I was 20 was to get a job at McLaren or Ferrari designing Formula One cars. Now, that didn't work out for me because I got pulled into the vortex of IDEO, which was a good thing. But a big part of me really loves automotive design, industrial design, graphic design, and all those designs that have to do with atoms and the way things look. So this podcast is going to focus on a big question that a few of my friends have come together around to create a movement to address. So we're really interested in why modern racing cars don't look as good as their predecessors, especially the ones from the 50s and 60s and 70s. So with all that, for this podcast, you're going to meet three of my good friends, and each of them represents a different kind of discipline, so to speak, which we'll learn about more. But fundamentally, they're all extremely visual in the way that they think. They all care a lot about aesthetics, and they care a lot about you know, what makes things look awesome. And so this podcast is really a meditation on that subject. And we got to some really interesting places. So I just want to say, even if you're not that into cars, or I think some of you listening are going to be really into cars, stay for that conversation. Because as a designer, I took away some really interesting lessons about craft and process and what it takes to put together really good stuff. I'm going to throw the green flag and let's get this puppy rolling. Hey, welcome to the Idea Futures podcast. We are here on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. It is May 17th, 2017, and May is a very special month for the three esteemed guests joining us today on the podcast, and I'll let you figure out why in just a moment. So they're all here. Um, two of them are remote. The first guy I'm going to introduce to you is actually in the room with us. His name is Riley Brennan. Hi, Riley. Hey, Diego. And Riley is a partner at Trucks Venture Capital, which invests in autonomous vehicle companies at the early stage of their existence, which most of them are at these days. He also teaches at Stanford and loves racing. In a previous life, he was a part of the legendary Corvette C5R, very loud, might I mention, uh, Le Mans factory race program. And he sports a winner's ring from that fine French event which is pretty awesome. Not many people do. I wish I had one. Bling, bling. <laughs> and you can find Riley at trucks.vc. And he's at Riley Brennan, R-E-I-L-L-Y-B-R-E-N-N-A-N. So thanks for joining, Riley. Thanks, Diego. Thanks, Piper. Thanks for having me. And moving right along, our next guest, Clay Dean, who happens to be Under Armour's new chief innovation officer. Congrats on that new role, Clay. Thanks so much, Diego. I appreciate it. 
So Clay is pretty legendary. He spent 28 years at GM Design in many, many areas and has probably touched or designed a lot of the cars that are on the road today and all of the awesome ones. And he most recently led its global advanced design team. Um, As I was saying, among his many accomplishments at GM, he spent time as the design director for Cadillac and for Hummer. He is also a renowned designer of race car liveries. And that is a clue to one of the subjects we'll be discussing today. You should follow him right now on Twitter. He is at DeanCrew7, which is a a great Twitter handle. So thanks for coming on, Clay. Thank you, Diego. It's great to be here. Can't wait for what we're going to get into now. And then last but certainly not least is Mr. J.R. Hildebrand. What's going on, Diego? Well, we're potting. That's what's going on. So, JR is a driver for Ed Carpenter Racing in the Verizon IndyCar Series. He is getting ready for the 101st running of the Indianapolis 500 this upcoming Memorial Day weekend. And uh, you actually, I hear you ran some laps today, right? Yeah, we ran. Uh, it's, uh, it was super windy out there today, but um, you know, we get a whole week of practice out in Indy, uh, out on track, before we qualify this upcoming weekend. Um, and then, you know, another week leading up to the 500 next week. So plenty of, plenty of time on track. It's all about, uh, using it the right way. We had some fun. Cool. And, uh, just to flesh out the rest of his bio, so you get a feeling for, um, what JR is interested in that you might be able to predict it given the theme that's building here. JR is a lover of high horsepower and low downforce, which aren't we all come on and, uh, (laughs) race cars from the 1960s. And we're GM vehicles. So there you go. He tweets at JR Hildebrand. And there's also a shadow account, which you might want to follow, which is at JR's mullet, which I think all of us follow here. And also he teaches at Stanford. <laughs> and he teaches at Stanford. So there's a lot of connections here. He actually teaches with Riley at Stanford. His his bio is so good, though, that the Stanford probably doesn't even qualify, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's page two of the bio. Yeah, that's page Not f- page one. That's the appendix <laughs> on page 13. Right. And then finally, you know me, I'm Diego Rodriguez. So as you've noticed by now, all three of these gents have some serious motorsports bona fides or bona fides. Uh, we're here to talk about design and graphic design and gnarly stuff. So JR, why don't you kick it off and talk about this little project that the four of us have brewed up? Yeah, thanks, Diego. Well, I think, uh, you know, in, in our time sort of becoming friends together, we have realized that not only are we all motorsports enthusiasts and and sort of nuts in our own in our own right um we all appreciate great racing cars but i think we we started to realize sort of haphazardly that we all really appreciate a great racing number as well the the liveries of old cars the colors the designs but you know when it comes down to it the number is such an important part of that in addition to how, how much we enjoy it, it's also really frustrating that a lot of times they get, when they when those cars go, get restored, these great cars, really historically significant cars, the number is often like the one thing that they end up screwing up on restoration jobs. So, you know, with, with this sort of like lack of appreciation or respect that the number, the number and the number design gets, um, a lot of times we've started a little project called Primal Numbers, hashtag Primal Numbers. Um, you can follow follow it on Twitter and on Medium, where um, we'll, we'll be posting over the next few months to really celebrate great racing number design. It's a it's a very specific part of sort of like racing heritage, but I think to all of us, it's just it's something we really love and something we want to make sure is celebrated by others as well. 
Yeah, and what I love about what we're doing together is that I think we're actually in some ways a classic multidisciplinary team. We have Clay, who, as I said, is a world-renowned designer. JR, you're a world-renowned race car driver. Riley, you're a world-renowned creator of media and programs and movements. And I have a podcast. <laughs> and, um, but, so we're all contributing something to this. And Riley, from your point of view, can you talk about the genesis of, of this and, and kind of how we've actually pulled together a collection of what we think are, are the coolest numbers out there and actually how we're also taking them from analog into digital? Sure, Diego. Uh, well, part of the origin is us trading a bunch of images on Instagram and over email. And I think a lot of us sort of love different liveries and cars of maybe the same era. And a lot of that tends to be from the 60s and 70s in racing. Um, And then, you know, just out of curiosity, in getting closer to the Indy 500, looking more at the past of Indianapolis is really fascinating. And there's one car in particular that really stuck out to me because uh, it happened to be a really significant car for Indy, um, the Marmon Wasp, number 32, 1911. Uh, That car, when it was restored, clearly wasn't restored by somebody who thought carefully about numbers the way that these four nerds do on this podcast and so it looked like it was something out of you know microsoft word that they just simply scanned and decaled and put on the car probably put a whole lot of care into the mechanical part of the car except for this one piece which in my mind is like getting 99 percent of the way there on the sistine chapel restoration so why not bring attention to that and actually go back to the original designs and thankfully in motorsports because it's, you know, um, in sporting events of that type, there tends to be sports photographers and fan photography. You can go back to the original artifact and you can find the design as it was raced that day. And through the wonders of the internet and, and graphic design, you can actually save those numbers. So part of this project is actually taking the original artifact of a photograph from back then when it ran on the day, giving it to a graphic designer, they pull that image out and actually digitally save that number. And then we make them fully downloadable in a bunch of different formats. So you can do whatever you want with it. You could put it on a t-shirt, restore a car to its correct state. Um, and then frankly, just for us, we just like geeking out in it. And then the process of actually saving these numbers is also fun and tedious if you're into things that are tedious. Which, which we all are. We are. And we've been really geeking out on this. Clay, I want to ask you, from your point of view, and maybe to help people who aren't as familiar with race car designs as we are, can you speak to what makes for an effective graphic design color scheme livery on a, on a racing car? Yeah, that's a really good question, Diego. And it's interesting. I, um, there's probably a lot of opinions around there. I Myself, from a little kid, I was always inspired by racing cars. And, and I honestly don't remember the very when the very first one influenced me the ones that i can really recall there are two that stood out to me really really strong and it was um, actually three and they were very simple schemes because there was really an almost no scheme to them one it was richard petty's petty blue superbird two uh, a mclaren can-am car from 1970 uh, that i saw in person and uh, down in georgia and three i was a little i was a boy scout and so Years ago, they had a magazine called Boy's Life, and, and there was a, an episode or an issue that had the little moth 24 hours, and there was the Gulf 
Porsche, powder blue gold Porsche. Very simple, beautiful, simple schemes. And I think as a, as a graphic designer and, and as you work through a paint scheme and work through sponsors, uh, I learned from what I think was a master, and his name was Randy Wateen. And if you, if we ever have another podcast, it'd be good to kind of talk about this man's contribution to motorsports because it is epic. And Randy was a very, he, he worked in the Corvette studio, had done a lot of things for Roger Penske, and he taught me that one of the things you want to do is to work with the vehicle, you know, a clean, elegant, very readable scheme. Um, you want to get the car to lift off the ground, if you will. So if you go back through a lot of my schemes that I've done in the past, you'll always many times see almost a light or a white bottom of the car and you separate it from the ground. And you just make things legible and you get the car speed and movement. Today's graphics are so different from the, that foreground era because the cars have, have uh, lots of wraps and they become almost like a... Um, like a box or a goods, and they, they many times don't reflect the shapes or the forms or the gesture of the car. It's a big advertising palette, if you will. So my feeling is is a clean, pure statement of a gesture, something that is memorable, something that would be very much like what we're doing here, timeless, that you look back and they're a very simple, quick, uh, recognizable element that just imprints on your mind that you love. That, that's my philosophy. Hey, Clay, do you think that part of that is due to the nature of the equipment now when you watch broadcast sports and motorsports, the quality of the camera is so good that designers kind of go overboard, whereas back in the day, to be able to see these vehicles on broadcast 30, 40 years ago, the fidelity of that image was really not that great. And so you really just had to kind of stick to something super simple for people to recognize it. Do you think that that movement and technology of broadcast actually impacted how people design the cars? That's a good question, Riley. I, I think, you know, my take, if you go back um, years ago, number one, you have a lot of sponsors on cars today, right? Compared to in the past, you just fundamentally didn't have as many names on the cars. So you have to find a way to integrate all of that. Definitely with HDTV or things you find on streaming online, you can see things much, much clearer than you ever did before. You watch an old broadcast from ABC and it's like, man, I, I can't find glasses that can help me read because it's so blurry and it's kind of frustrating. But, you know, it, it's funny. You go back, when you're at the track, it's a different story. So there's what's happening on TV, but then there's the at-the-track experience. And I remember years ago being at Michigan Speedway, and there were two cars that just jumped off the track as you were watching things move around. There weren't a, there weren't a lot of black cars back then, so Dale Earnhardt's black car was, boom, right there. But you always had Richard Petty's STC car, which was fluorescent, and it just screamed off the track and glowed. And you had the Tide car of Daryl Walter. And um, those cars you could see anywhere on the track. So, so I think some of this, there's a bit of readability. Some of it, I think, is a trend. You have a lot of different philosophies that have emerged. And there was a time that, um, you know, the sponsorships just didn't have the kind of impression that they have today. You think of the Brumos Porsche, which was an iconic statement of what the car was. The Interscope Porsches of, of Danny and Gaius and Ted Field and um, uh, the, the Golf, uh, or just the McLaren race cars, that orange was just symbolic to who they were, and, and the sponsor colors were secondary. I mean, you almost didn't even see a sponsor color recognition. The team was the, was the statement. I just think it's just a different era. But no doubt, I, I do think sometimes there are too many messages on the cars. It's very, very hard to see and to read them. Whether or not you have high-def 
TV or not. I think sometimes we're trying to create too many messages, but it's, it's an interesting question. This is Diego. I want to pop in and build on a on a thought you were pursuing there, Riley, about technology. And you were talking about the viewing technologies in a lot of ways. And I, I want to ask JR a question about the technology of actually creating these liveries and putting them on the cars. Because after the Marmon Wasp, which is the first in our series, we go on to talk about the number nine uh, Blonde special from 1957, which is a hand-painted car. And, I, and that's pretty yeah. different than how your car is created today. Can you talk about the, the process by which your car is created and, and contrast that with how somebody would have been doing it in 1957? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I was, when I was listening to Clay there, the, one of the things that really stood out to me is, is just this idea that, you know, a lot of racing cars nowadays just don't really feel like they have much personality or, or identity to them. There's, you know, Clay made the made the comment about there being a lot of messages that are trying to be sort of told that in a lot of ways that, you know, sort of lack of simplicity to the design, you know, really, really shows up, you know, that the, you're, you're not really trying to personify a, a, a design characteristic that the teams are trying to get across. You've got sort of a mixed bag of sponsors and, you know, different people that everybody's sort of trying to please. It makes the, it makes a lot of today's cars that sort of, you know, part of it is, yes, it's become more corporate. You know, it's become a more sort of commercial business venture going racing. But um, I think in general, just that the fact that there are so many, so many different, so many different designs and so many different sort of messages being brought across does end up sort of clouding what the look really is, what the identity of every individual car, um, you know, what it is, what it stands for you know, what it's trying to say. You know, Diego, to your point more specifically, you know, in terms of how the cars today are, how the livery of cars today is, is developed, um, you know, it's it's very, very digital from the from the outset. You know, the cars themselves are designed in wind tunnels with CFD. You know, there's manufactured parts all over the place. Everything's carbon fiber or, or some precious metal. There's, there's very few sort of hands-on, hand-fabricated parts on the car itself to start with and then you sort of take that a step further to how the livery and the design of the sort of paint scheme and sponsor integration numbers um, all of that stuff is layered on top of that that again is all done you know on top of a on top of a CAD drawing on a computer so um, there's a little bit less human touch you know really genuine physical human touch um, across the board in motorsports these days. And, and I do think that, that that starts to show up. You know, you watch a pinstriper or a, I love having guys, you know, talking about helmet design and helmet paint is a whole a whole other story. But I love just seeing the, the human element on display on the helmets. You know, you can see that the lines aren't all exactly perfect or, you know, there's a circle here and there's a circle there and they're not exactly the same helmet to helmet, let's say. We've lost that on the racing cars as well, so I think it's it's just sort of in a different era, and you know certainly being somebody that's in the midst of it on a day to day basis i I often find myself wondering if we're if we're missing out a little bit by not having that human touch on what we do on a on a more frequent basis from a design perspective on the cars so can we change that chair? Can we just bring a sharpie to your next race and draw something? <laughs> You know, I think uh, it's it's what it's it's a great question, Riley. I think that um, I I do honestly believe that a lot of it is just because it's become easier 
frankly. You know, you've got different liveries for different races. You know, Diego mentioned earlier that a lot of the cars are, or uh, Clay had mentioned that a lot of the cars are wrapped now instead of being painted at all. Our Speedway cars here at, at Indianapolis, we still paint them because um, you can get the lines a little bit a little bit tighter. You can get everything a little bit smoother, a little bit more streamlined, cutting through the air at 230 miles an hour. Every, every little bit makes a difference. But I think it's just that attention to detail that maybe over a course of you know a couple of decades we've just sort of decided that it's not as important or that it doesn't matter as much and nobody's really doing it anymore so you don't you don't really see it anywhere there's no standard for there being great design on on race cars anymore i mean my gosh you just look at i look at roger penske's cars from the 60s and 70s of, of any variety whether that be can-am or um, Trans Am cars or cars that ran at the Indianapolis 500, and there's just like pinstriping and all these little detailed, delicate places all over the car that you you don't see it from 15 or 20 feet away. But then you get up close and you see, man, like somebody somebody really spent some time on this thing. It makes me certainly appreciate the attention that was paid to all of the little bits and pieces of that specific individual vehicle so riley i think i think to your point you're right there's there's some of it that's you know gone away because technology has developed and and maybe there's a better way of doing things but you know i think like a lot of things as as technology creeps in and allows us to do things easier it's worth noting that you know we can bring a little bit of that humanity back into the picture i also wonder if there's a design process lesson in here and clay i want to ask you because I've seen photos and heard stories about Adrian Newey, the famous racing car designer from an engineering standpoint, who always has a a one-to-one scale drawing of any race car that he's working on in his office, so he can literally see it at full size. He's not looking into a CAD screen and trying to map that onto what the parts or the proportions might be in real life. And I was thinking about that Marmon Wasp or the Balan Special from 1957, and that there was an actual, you know, sign painter with a brush with a can of paint, figuring it out probably as they went and actually painting onto the surface of the car and adjusting the design as they went, and that's got to be in contrast to to the way these digital liveries are produced. So, I mean, Clay, is there is there something that happens when you're working in a computer versus? With a, with a live model, as you guys do in the car industry uh, with clay, that, that changes the way that you actually design? You know, you, you hit it right on, Diego. And it's interesting because when you contrast the digital to the hands-on, there is a very different perspective in terms of proportion and size and relevance. Because I can contrast what it was when I was laying out cars. I, I remember doing some great initial drawings for a car for Robbie Gordon uh, on a Raynard Indy car. It was a Valvoline scheme. Did the drawings, and it was great. We got all the line drawings from, um, from Raynard and went down to the shop and then needed to lay the car out. And it's like, holy crap, everything's different. You know, and, and so I spent an entire day reproportioning everything around the car by hand, laying stripes out in a different way. And what you had drawn in a 2D application, and at that point, there wasn't, we weren't using computers or Illustrator, it was just 2D. Even just a 2D hand drawn thing had to be completely reinterpreted in 3D because as you started looking at it from different viewpoints and it changed. I mean, everything had to be readjusted. And that's the way wonderful sign painters, they do that. They almost reproportion everything. And what was interesting in the days um, when the race cars were originally painted before decals emerged, there was an interpretation 
of um, even even lettering that went on the car, whereas it rolled over in certain views. An expert sign painter was able to artistically manipulate, you know, how the spacing and how the stroke of the letters were. And that's why it's so difficult sometimes to replicate a lot of that today, because there was an, an artist's hand and an artist's eye reinterpreting graphic logos or logotypes or even numerals to lay on the car in a beautiful way. And they compensated for the shapes. If you laid a decal on it verbatim, it would look odd. It would look strange. And so you find yourself manipulating it. Today's digital tools don't give you that same capability to do that. And I think we see it in uh, how we design production cars. We were struggling with it. And uh, many of the concept cars that, that I worked on, we would build them digitally and completely re-sculpt them by hand to try to get that human touch, the sensitive touch. And uh, I see it here in my new my new role in doing footwear. Guys live on Illustrator, and then all of a sudden you get a sample back. It's like, hey, that shoe doesn't look like that drawing. What happened? And it's that interpretation of human and I think the, those original race cars and the stroke of the numerals, which are so hard to replicate today, it is the digital tools kind of mask things. They mask proportion, they mask gesture, and they mask how you roll things on. And I think uh, there's um, I think there's some mastery that's been lost as technology has continued to emerge. If any of you listening could have been in the room while we were talking about all these cars, when Clay was going through his list of inspirations, whether it's the Superbird or a golf painted 917 or GT40, Riley and I were sitting here smiling and going <laughs> thumbs up. And you know, when I visualize those cars, these are not planar surfaces. These are these beautiful organic shapes with compound curves and you know, in a lot of cases just in, they're incredibly sculptural. So you can imagine the challenges of actually, as Clay was saying, mapping text onto it and making the proportions work and making it readable. So I want to throw out a jump ball to the three of you because I think this may be a provocation that you all have an opinion on. And it would be, what if, so here's a how might we uh, question. For JR's next evolution of the livery on his car, would it help? Would it be possible to actually have a really talented graphic designer, painter, artist actually go into a VR application and be literally walking around a digital version of JR's car, hand painting it, and then seeing how that livery might contrast with what they would do using Photoshop on a flat screen? That would be pretty cool. But what about if he would just with the actual car and a can of paint? Even I mean, better. We are in Palo Alto, I know, but... Yeah. We got to stay cars in India. somewhat high tech. <laughs> well, there's that issue, right? Because I think part of the reason people don't paint anymore is because it's costly to mm -hmm. do it, and also it's a bit of a lost art. But yeah, I love that. Like, why not? Why not, Jr? Why not literally go paint your car? I mean, not with a sharpie, but have somebody who's really good go paint it. Yeah, I mean, there, look, there's a there's a couple of things that you guys brought up, but I I think they sort of point to the same thing, which is a little bit of a, a struggle that I think exists in a lot of industries and and for a lot of for a lot of people just in their personal life is we have all of these new technologies out there. Like how do we actually use them to do things better and create a more human experience? So we've talked a lot about how kind of the existing digital tools almost mask that ability. You know, your question about VR, I think is a really interesting one that does that actually allow for the best of both worlds to have that perspective and have that sort of gain on you know, what's going on and, and how you view it from a lot of different perspectives and where things go and how they overlay. You know, the, the far more analog version of that is, is, yeah, absolutely come out and actually paint the car itself, 
you know, I think we, we've gotten ourselves into a point where we so totally recognize the value of like the most lightweight possible vehicle that can possibly be created to run on track that, you know, that definitely has its own downsides as well. You know, like we're not going to roll out a car at Indianapolis that's been hand painted because it's got, you know, these little tiny imperfections in the paint and, you know, we're, we're here to get every last little ounce of speed out of the thing that we can. It's almost interesting to think about how might you create a situation where everybody's doing that. You know, could you have one race out of the year that every car that enters the race has to be legitimately hand-painted? How cool would that be to see the artistic interpretation of where the sponsors go and how those fonts and, you know, sort of designs are overlaid in different places? I think you... You get suckered into just looking for all the flat parts of the car and sticking sponsors there. You know, how might all of this stuff look if, if everybody was forced into a situation where they they had to be a little more creative and more hands on with that you know, with that design and, and the orientation and layout of how everything goes. I think that would be that would just be such a cool thing to do because there's there's so many talented people there's so many talented people within our industry, but so many talented people that have been involved in motorsports and you just we we've gone through this process of of looking back at all of these great numbers and great liveries and great race cars. You know, Diego, you've pointed out on a, on a few occasions, you start to realize how, realize how closely all of those things go together. You think from the from the outside that you know, great number doesn't really have anything to do with you know any particular attention to detail or innovation or ingenuity in other places on the vehicle, but so frequently that that was actually the case. I'd be interested for you to to talk a little bit about that with us. Yeah, it's funny because Riley alluded to this uh, fact that this project actually came out of the fact that we're just sharing photos on Instagram with each other. And then we started sharing zip files of photos with each other. And we, we, we actually followed this process of everybody just independently coming up with their visual list of their favorite race car, car liveries. It was only then that we realized that almost to a car, maybe not every car, Every car that we thought had a really cool, distinctive livery that we could learn from was also a car that you would say shifted a paradigm or just pioneered new ground from a technical standpoint. And usually the car was a winner too. So there's something there about the total package uh, around a strong point of view and somebody saying, you know, gosh, we put this much work into it. We better look at, make it look killer too. Hey, JR, what was really cool about the release we did of the Marmon Wasp last week was that we just had this immediate response from the interwebs and people were sending in photos of how they'd taken the number and put it in another context, whether it was like the home screen on their phone or putting it into a photo. And a lot of people saying that they were seeing the Marmon Wasp really differently because they had never realized how different the modern incarnation of it is from the original. Where do you want to take the project from here, and, and how might people get involved with it who are interested in it? Yeah, Diego, it's a it's a great call. I mean, it was first, it was just so cool to see the response that it got. You know, it was, it was, I think we were all kind of sitting here like, are we just totally nerding out on this, and this is like not really that interesting? Or, um, but man, like as soon as we made the first post, you know, people were people were chiming in about all kinds of stuff. And I think the coolest part was not only the sort of recognition that, oh man, like I had no idea that that number is actually so different, but just how excited people were to really see this number kind of 
all by itself, you know, to be able to, to sort of bear witness to this, like, oh man, that is just so cool, you know, to pick out that one little detail and really focus on it. Um, so it was, it was cool to see that other people experienced that same vibe um, that we had. But you know, we've, we've got a queue, certainly, of numbers. I think I have now found myself, every time that we you know, sort of go through this process of picking another number to, to focus on being now like ultra diligent about making sure that we've got them all totally dialed in, but that uh, we've already been getting some awesome suggestions, uh, particularly on Twitter. I think that's, that's where this, this lives the easiest. Um, so I would definitely encourage people to hit any of us, any of us up. I'm just at J.R. Hildebrand, but we're always looking for, for great new numbers, maybe numbers that we haven't seen something more obscure and, and great photos of good numbers, you know, for us to do a great sort of digital recreation, um, you know, it all starts with having a couple of really awesome photos to start with. So this is very much intended just for it to be something that's, that's shareable for everybody. You know, we want to make this stuff free and, and easy to get a hold of, easy to use, easy to do whatever you want with it. Um, whether it's just reading through an interesting bio that maybe you, know, you didn't know so much about to start with, or um, you know, picking a file off of off of our page and um, you know, using it on your own somewhere. So we love the engagement and um, for people to send us as many suggestions as as they can or want. Cool, and that's hashtag Primal Numbers. So we've done how many how many episodes of this podcast have we done, Piper? This is number forty six. That's a good number. I'd like to see that on the side of a race car. Kind of has a nice proportion. Valentino. To it. Is that Valentino? Oh wow, Valentino Yellow. Rossi. Yeah. Not that we're geeks or anything about numbers. We should, we definitely need to put that in. His oh, forty six. Yeah. I mean, his helmet is amazing, yeah. or his helmet variants. Oh, I love it. This is the Rossi podcast. By the way, just to to, to build on that, you you know Randy Nonnenberg, who course, runs Spring Trailer, and Great he has told me before about when he we had a common although growing up in different parts of the of the universe i used to get put to bed at nine o'clock when i was little and apparently he did too because he told me that he would sit in bed and wait for the numbers in the digital clock to go nine eleven all the way through all of the porsche codes up until nine fifty nine. then he'd go to sleep right after nine nine is the best hour if yeah. you're a, a car person there's Looking so much to a, enjoy in a, there at a sony oh, digital totally. clock i i still do that I still which i think that. is a that's kind of a kindred spirit of the primal numbers project or yeah. little kids going to sleep thinking about the nines on the clock. Exactly. All you little kids who do that, there's you still have a future. You might turn <laughs> out as, as well as we have. So I, I want to just slightly shift gears. You know, I we've done all these episodes. We've done 46 episodes. And I've only talked about cars a few times. I think I've, right? Oh, Piper's like making a face. A few, only a two or three. Uh, 23 well, out five. of 46. I don't think I've talked about cars that much. Uh, there's been a few mentions of Cadillacs recently, including a ride in a Cadillac that might have been uh, slightly illegal. But I would love to go around the room. I mean, this is too good of a crew to pass up this opportunity. I would love to ask each of you what your favorite car design is and, and why. Maybe we start with Clay. Hmm. That's kind of a, you know, Diego, that's not a fair question to guys that love cars. Because um, <laughs> there's there's so many that impress you in so many ways, but if I had to pick just one, I think everybody knows what I would pick. And it'd be a Porsche 911 because it's just such a pure, consistent statement. It's authentic. It's genuine. It's beautiful to look at in just about every every angle. At least to me, it is. 
and and it, it evokes a, a feeling or an emotion of the mission of the company, and I think that's probably my uh, probably my favorite, at least for those reasons. Yeah, hard to go wrong with the 911, especially if you have a digital clock. How about you, Riley? My favorite car is the Mark II Volkswagen Golf GTI. Wow, which is a <laughs> yes. vehicle from the 80s, and I love. I love the era of the company when they were doing the worst. They put out some of my most favorite designs. So in that era, um, it wasn't really it wasn't designed by a famous designer. Like the first one was designed by Jajara. Who designed it? The the head of the studio, Schaefer. So it was you know not maybe not one of those iconic designs when you think about all the cars in history. But for me, growing up, I think all of us have a record or a sort of a moment in time like with news or something or a, a vehicle in my case which seems to be that or maybe a book that kind of makes you think differently about the whole category and so for me a mark ii gti with a 16 valve engine is that sort of that turning point and it's you know still pretty handsome you know of of the ideo futures podcast listeners I'm going to guess half a percent would agree with me. It is a handsome car. I, I remember that iconic Pirelli ad of the yellow with it kind of pushing from behind as if it was like a plastic or a rubber screen. And you just saw the headlight and the corner of the grill and you knew it was the Mark II. I'm nodding. Yeah. I'm radio nodding. Right <sighs> we're, we're making some really deep eye contact yeah. <laughs> right now, Riley and me. So I'm going to diverge a little bit from the German theme we're on. So I racked my brains last night because it's a difficult question, as Clay said. And it, you know, are we going for a car that's significant or one that's beautiful, or is it the one you want to drive? And I settled on significance. And the car, my favorite car design would be the Citroen De Chevaux. Mm. You know, which I I don't think I'd actually want to own, and I wouldn't definitely wouldn't want to get in a Reckon. <laughs> um, but I just love that it represents this ability to go to f- back to first principles and say what really matters. And how can we rethink the paradigm for what a car can be? It's, uh, it's kind of like the equivalent of painting a helmet by hand, right? It's, they were so constrained in what they could do that I think they came up with some pretty magic solutions to very basic problems like what is, this, what is a chair in a car? Or how can you get away with having 20 horsepower? And, and how do you shift gears? And what, it, what should the roof be? And all these kind of iconic things. But I guess that makes me the token weirdo in the group. JR, bring it home, man. What What's your favorite car design? I mean, I, I, we could just, I'm sure each of us could just rattle off a huge list. I, I'm going to go more on the uh, of the racing variety. But I, I think, it, to me, just one of the coolest cars for all manner of reasons was the 1967, or raced in 1967, 1967 SCP turbine car that raced at the Indianapolis 500. Just such a, almost like freak of a vehicle in its, I've been, I've been looking at pictures of this thing and, and looking for photos of it from, you know, when they rolled it out, just thinking like, oh my God, like I can't even imagine what people were saying when this car rolled out of garage stall, you know, whatever, 25 uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway back in 1967. It's a space frame car, you know, totally bespoke chassis that had been worked on for two years at that point, which that all by itself you just don't see anymore. You know, everything, there's a new update for everything constantly to think that this thing had been worked on for, for two whole years before they rolled it out. Um, it had an aircraft gas turbine engine in it. 
the driver was offset on the right of the car in the center of the car between the axles. The turbine was on the left. It had this amazing STP kind of orangey red livery that you know still stands out today. Black background to the numbers, white numbers, just a, a, a beautiful sort of shape and design. It was four-wheel drive, which sort of unheard of at that point in the in the mid 60s just all of these really awesome innovative elements and it went out and was leading the race with five or ten laps to go so just a such a cool part of motorsports history and, and indianapolis history you know parnelli jones was the wheel man who's one of my heroes just the whole story of the car it, it gets me excited about what we what, what like racing is all about you know it's just this incredible there was just such an incredible diversity of machinery and people and ideas that all came together in this bizarre but incredible vehicle that both looked the part and walked the walk out on track. Well, that's an awesome one, and it's a great tie-in to Primal Numbers for us. Thanks, guys. That was really fun. I hope you had a good time. Thanks, Diego. That was great, guys. Yeah, we loved it. And I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to join the podcast. I know you're all really busy and have a lot going on, especially you, JR. Uh, you're pretty busy this week qualifying for the race and then actually driving 500 miles the following weekend really fast. Yeah, man. By the, by the time we get this up, we'll have, uh, hopefully we'll be running some laps at, at a little over 230 miles an hour and um, be looking forward to, to race day coming up here soon. Well, we will all be rooting for you. You can root for us on uh, Memorial Day Sunday in the number 21 Preferred Freezer Services Chevrolet. It's a, it's a nice shade of sort of pearly white with dark blue to match our uh, sponsor sponsor colors. So uh, look for us out there. Hopefully we'll be uh, making a run for the milk um, here coming up soon. All right. Thanks, everybody. Hey, I just wanted to, again, thank uh, all three of those guys, Riley, JR, and Clay, for an amazing conversation. You can see from that why I love hanging out with them and why we go completely, completely, utterly geeky about hashtag primal numbers. So check us out on Twitter and on Medium. We're going to keep publishing for as long as we can around this stuff. And, you know, maybe we should create a coffee table book. Who knows what will happen? But we want you to join in on the conversation and if you know of a cool car with some great visuals on it, send it our way. We just want to uh, wallow around in that stuff and see where it takes us. So endeth pod 46, which as we learned is an auspicious number. Awesome. Love the 46. It is a primal number itself. And so as we say around the Ideo Futures podcast, and which I bet they're saying quite a bit at Gasoline Alley over at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, don't get ready. Get started.